Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome again to T- Twin Cities Church. If you're a visitor with us this morning, I'm glad that you're here. We're just in the midst of starting our series in the Psalms, and uh, like Deirdre said, it's been a real joy to work through these. Uh, there's such conviction and such beauty contained in the Psalms, which is really, I mean, I guess what the biggest conviction for me is just my lack of appreciation of poetry and how powerful that really is and necessary in our lives. You know, Psalm, Psalm 15, as we get into this one in particular, I mean, it's a really fascinating psalm with a starts with a really essential question, right? Oh Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And it's really the essential question of what kind of person does God desire? What kind of person ultimately do I need to be? This desire to be able to sojourn, the desire to be able to dwell with God, to be with him, to travel with him, to be able to be in his presence, how do I become the kind of person that can actually be with God? And that theme of righteousness, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, this theme runs all the way through from Genesis to Revelation, but this, this intrinsic desire and question Right, that's at the heart of all major philosophies and religions around the world. Right, What is required of me? What do I have to do? What kind of life do I have to live to be fulfilled, to be holy, to live a life that ultimately matters, to live a life that's good, that live, to live a life that actually pleases God? What do you want from me, God? Who do you want me to be in order to be with you, to be accepted by you, to dwell with you. It's a powerful prayer and a powerful question. Who do I have to be? And then it goes into this list, a very straightforward, non-metaphorical list. Here it is. This is what's required. This is what the Lord expects. This is the life. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right, speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who, who does not put out his money at interest and does not uh, take a bribe against the innocent. It's a very strong description. It's a repeated picture that we're going to see throughout Scripture. This is the same description, really, ultimately, of Job, if you're familiar with that story. It's the picture of a holy life, of a righteous life, the life that the Lord requires. Thinking of even Micah, you know, what does the Lord require of me? What is this picture? What is the life? And this is it. And you see the righteousness of this individual, right, in three areas. You see his or her righteousness in what they do, Right? And then that, what they do, they live a life that's free of accusation. Their life is above reproach, to use a New Testament term. Like there's a general character of their life that when people look at them and they look at the life that this person lives, right, they have nothing to say negatively against it. There's an overall approach to life that's good, that's righteous, that can't be accused. And you see in that what they do because they are fair and they are just towards others. They do what is right 
and they speak what is right. Not just their actions, not just their words, right? We have both of those in our culture, right? We, they say the right things, but then they don't follow through on it with their actions. This is actions and speech. They do and say what is right, and their conscience is clear. They're honest in their heart. The motives are clear. They're not second-guessing. They're not doing, they're not saying and acting in such a way to try to please others or please themselves or please God. They're not constantly worrying about why they're doing the things that they're doing. They have a clear heart, a clear conscience. They just do what is right. You see their righteousness also in what they don't do. Right? That list also is clear. They don't tear down people with their words. They don't slander. They don't speak badly of other people to make themselves look better, which is so rare, right? They don't harm their neighbor. They don't intentionally put their neighbors or put others at a disadvantage for their advantage. They think through the effect of their actions on others. They don't cover over or hold sins against those who are close to them. They don't hold a reproach against their friends, those within their community, those within their family. They don't just cover up their sin, nor do they hold on to their sin and hold it over their heads. There's a forgiveness instead of a minimizing of sin or a covering up of sin. They're honest with the sins of their friends, of their neighbors, of their loved ones within their family. They're honest about those sins, but they also don't hold them against them. And then you see in this person's relationships with others, their righteousness as well. They aren't associated with the wicked, with the vile and corrupt. That's a hard line there too, but it is true, right? There is a line of association where this person is not known to be amongst them. It doesn't mean that they're cut off from all people who are not believers, but they are not known to be of them. Rather, they're associated with those who fear God. Their lifestyle and their life, it is clear that they have devoted themselves to those who are in the household of God. That they keep their word, even when it hurts them. They honor their commitments to those that they are close to, to those within the household of God and of the faith they are committed to. And then finally, you see their righteousness on display in how they handle their money, which is also a very biblical idea as well. That they lend freely, generously, without looking to profit off of their lending. They don't take advantage of the poor with how they get their money as well. They know the source of their income. They've thought through where their riches are really coming from and how it affects other people. They're not looking for profit in how they handle their money. It's a good list. It's a, it's a really good list of a life that the Lord has required of us. It's a convicting list. It's an encouraging list. It's really, I mean, it is the picture that we all want, that we all want to have, that we all want to live up to. And it's the list that we're supposed to measure ourselves against throughout the Bible. Am I this way? Is this true of me? To be this man or this woman who not only does what is right, says what is right, is right in their heart, whose life is characterized 
generally as this above reproach without accusation that's truly, that's taking care of the poor and the innocent, that speaks well of others, that does good, lives righteously. And here at the very end, too, of the psalm, who is never moved, right? Like that closing to the psalm is truly powerful. He who does these things shall never be moved. What a universal hope that all people have. That nothing can shake or move us. Stable, steadfast, prospering, pleasing the Lord that our citizenship in the household of God would be secure. To no longer be anxious and afraid. To be stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. To be prospering, to be happy, to live that blessed life of Psalm 1 and 2. Living a life that pleases the Lord. But... Right? Here's the problem for us, right? We read these types of lists, and I think almost all of us bristle at these things, at this list of behavior, at this picture of righteousness, especially if you come from a religious background. I think it's even harder oftentimes to read these types of psalms, to read these types of lists, to go through this and know this is what the Lord requires of us. We read this, we compare ourselves to it, and we turn away from it, right? Oftentimes because we know we can't measure up to it or we haven't measured up to it in our past. This is not true of who I am or who I was. Or we don't even bother to read it just knowing that we can't live up to it. We can't get to it. I don't even want to bother with this type of stuff. Why would I meditate on this picture? Why would I pray Psalm 15? We would rather see ourselves as sinners. Right? We'd rather kind of wallow in our sin, satisfied in that picture of ourselves. We, we don't want to see ourselves or even oftentimes hope to be saints or to live a righteous life. Oftentimes there's a very kind of false Christian humility when it comes to the pursuit of righteousness where we have to downplay our even pursuit of these things. I'm a sinner. I'm just like everybody else. I'm not better than anyone else. My life is just like all other ones. You know, I'm, I'm completely corrupt. I'm completely a sinner. Let me just stay there, you know, right where we all are. And then we disregard the law. We disregard God's instructions. We disregard the picture of the life that God has actually called us to live because One, we don't think we could attain it if we tried anyway. Two, we're afraid to kind of earn our own righteousness, so we start to flee away from trying to pursue these things or create a works-based system, or I'm just going to stay here resting in God's grace. I know I'm a sinner. I know I've been forgiven, and I'm just going to rest right there. Or many of us have tried really hard to live up to a set of rules or expectations try to become a picture of righteousness that we think that we should become. We hear a list like this, and rather than flee from it, many of us latch on to it and say, perfect, now I know what I have to do. Good, (laughs) here's the list. I can do this list. 
I can follow these things. And if I follow these things, salvation is at hand, right? My security is there. I can do this. And it becomes a, hard, a hardship for us. Psalm 15 is actually hard. It's a very hard psalm to have that be your psalm of meditation and prayer. It doesn't come naturally to many of us. Instead, and I think in the, like this week, like Psalm 14, if you have a Bible, like Psalm 14 is actually the psalm, right, that we probably more gravitate towards. It says, right, the fool in his heart says there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down, looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand any right, who seek after God. They've all turned aside. Psalm 14 feels more accurate. Right? We like Psalm 14 more. There is no one righteous. There is none who seek God. There is no one who fits this bill, this picture of Psalm 15. Psalm 14 is who I actually am. Psalm 14 is actually who David is. David writes both of these psalms. How can David pray for both of these things? How can he pray, Psalm 14, that there is no one righteous, not even one? Everyone is rejecting God. No one is living a blameless life. And then honestly pray and seek after Psalm 15. The Lord requires righteousness. To dwell with God is to be pure and blameless. How, how can he do that without being overwhelmed by the weight of his guilt and with the truth of Psalm 14? Our reactions to God's word, right, really reveal our hopes. Right, why do we bristle against God's laws? Why do we bristle against and fight against God's instructions for humanity? We either boast in our actions or we lose hope in our failures so quickly. It seems as if there's only two options for us, that either I have to take that list, those instructions that God gives, and I have to follow them. If I want blessing, if I want to please God, I have to follow the list. And then we experience the hurt and disappointment of failure. Or we completely disregard the list and say, praise Jesus that he's died to forgive me, that I don't have to follow his law anymore. There's no one blameless. Or right. these, these psalms, these pictures, these instructions, the only point that they're, the only reason they're in the Bible is just to show you you can't do it. Now that you know you can't do it, now just have your faith in Jesus and disregard the law. Kind of throw out the instructions. They're not necessary. Either way, the law becomes a curse to us. I think many of us have experienced this. Where the law could become our slave master, I have to follow this for my, for my life to have blessing, for me to be secure, for me to have hope, for me to be loved. I have to do these things. And it becomes a curse over us. The weight, the dread, any failure has to be minimized or hidden or covered up. I can't do this, but I have to do this. And it's just a curse. Or the law still as a curse that sits in judgment over us where we don't even want to look at it. I want to disregard and run away from this law because I don't even, I know I can't follow it. So it sits over here as just this distant judge that's constantly reminding me that I'm never going to be good enough. I'll never amount to anything. Our reaction to God's plans, to his desires, reveal our hopes. 
and our lack of understanding of God's law. Because really, what is the point of Psalm 15? What is the point of these pictures? What is the point of God's instructions that he gives to his people time and time again throughout the Old Testament? The law itself is not a curse. And we saw that at the very beginning of the Psalms. Happy is the man, blessed is the man who meditates on the law, who puts his hope in the law, who loves this law. It can't be a curse to us. We make it a curse when we make it a means of our salvation or when we reject it together. But rather, the law was meant to be a blessing to the people. It's meant to be a guard for us and for our behavior. It is meant to guide us in our life. This picture that's given here in Psalm 15, this is a life of flourishing. This is a life of shalom. This is the life that, of course, would be good for us and good for all of humanity. And there's a progression, even in Psalm 15, in that first verse, of going from sojourning to dwelling, this hope of becoming something, of moving towards something, that one day we will dwell with God forever, that one day I will move from just being a sojourner to being a permanent resident, that one day this is really truly what our experience will be, that it's a picture God's instructions, God's law, if it's the Ten Commandments or if it's here, right? it's a picture of hope, of the way life was meant to be and of the way life will be one day, fully in his kingdom. Psalm 14 ended with that salvation will come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. One day, right, Israel will experience true peace and shalom. One day the kingdom is truly going to come. The true king will come and then salvation will be at hand. David gets this. This is why he can pray both 14 and 15. He knew honestly who he was. He knows he's not righteous. He knows his life is not free from accusation. His whole life he's being accused of his sins and they're being brought before him. He knows that this isn't who he is in Psalm 15. But he knows as well that that is who he will be. That the kingdom will be characterized this way. That he was chosen by God for redemption. That God was saving him and is saving him through the promised child, through the son that he's going to have. That despite himself, God loves him and is caring for him and is working out his salvation as well as Israel's salvation. And for us, who live on this side of the cross, who understand the gospel, we see this in Christ as well, that Christ fulfills the law. He does this. He does live out this picture of Psalm 15. He is the one who does fully fulfill the law. And he takes the punishment that was meant for all of us who don't follow the law. But does that mean that the law is gone? Of course not, right? We just went through Romans. Of course the law is not gone now. Rather, Christ actually gives us hope for fulfilling the law. The king has come. His kingdom is at hand. This hope of Psalm 14 is truly present. And then we walk into Psalm 15 with hope. The psalm is our future. This is who we are. This is who we will be. This is what Christ desires of us and what he died for us to become.
We're now freed, not from the law. I think that was, growing up evangelical, I know many of you guys did too. I, I, I grew up evangelical, and I think it's easy to get this picture of like the weight of the law is just to get you to finally confess. Look at all these lists and rules. Look, just finally admit you can't follow it so that you can pray the sinner's prayer and be saved. <sighs> Thank God I've been saved. And now that list of rules and laws, I can just kind of get rid of it. I don't have to worry about it because I've been saved. He doesn't save me from the law. No, Christ has saved me for his law. He fulfilled the law on my behalf. He took away the guilt and the punishment that was, I'm deserving for not fulfilling it so I can actually walk in it. I can love the law now with a much different motivation. I'm free to do the law. I put in the work, not because I have to do the work, but because I get to do the work. This is good. God's law is good. His instructions for humanity are good. It is for my flourishing. Christ has made it possible for me to now fulfill the law and to actually grow in it. Where we can actually now not just be saved, but walk into salvation. Where I can actually start to care about my sanctification on a whole nother level. Where I can actually desire to be holy. To want this experience. You know, Deirdre mentioned in her, in her welcome and in her prayer about this counter world that the Psalms provide for us. And this is what Psalm 15 is. We bristle at it because it's not who we are. It's, it's not really what we experience in our life. These types of people are not everywhere that do right, that speak right, that are just, that do take care of the poor and the innocent. But this is, should be my longing and my heart's desire is for this, for this to be true and for this to be true of me. What do I actually long for if I don't long for Psalm 15? If I would rather reject this and not meditate on the law or his instructions, what is that revealing about where I put my hope for my own righteousness and safety? What kingdom do you really want to live in if we don't want to live in this kingdom that's described in God's word? Am I really satisfied to live in a kingdom where people lie and slander, where I can be saved, but my life doesn't have to look different? I mean, is this really the kingdom that I want for my life and for this world and that the king has established? We cannot stay satisfied in our sin and only give lip service to God's law. This false Christian humility is ultimately sin. I have to take God's instructions seriously. I cannot, I have to stop presuming upon God's grace to not take seriously my life and my actions. I have to stop minimizing and excusing the way that I live, the way that I act, and I have to take this seriously because God takes this seriously. Desiring a life of righteousness is not wrong. It's not arrogant or proud. Right? We have a fear, I think, again, if you grew up 
evangelical in particular, but Christian, right? You have a tendency sometimes to not want to desire these things because it'll appear like it's a works-based righteousness or I'm not trying to earn my salvation, so I'm not going to try to, you know. No, it's not wrong to desire to live a holy and pleasing life to the Lord. (laughs) That's what we should desire. It's what our hearts should long for, to be stable and steadfast, to be blameless and above reproach, to have a life that does reflect the goodness of God and to experience his blessings and prosperity in our life. Living this life is not wrong. We also have that tendency where we want to minimize even God's grace and goodness to us in the life that we live, right? And sometimes we don't even want to talk about the stability that we're experiencing, <laughs> that we all kind of want to level playing field. And you know, nobody's really stable or steady. Everybody has sin. And we all... well. It's true, we all have sin, but we all, there is a difference when we are stable and steadfast in the hope of the gospel. We do experience more prosperity, more fruitfulness, more peace, and an abundance, and we do put to death sin. These are true realities, and to desire those things is not religion, it's not arrogance, it's not wrong to long for and hope for righteousness. To hope for sanctification. But part of our problem is that we know what would be required of us if we were to actually pursue this life of Psalm 15. This would require a lot of work. This requires a lot of vulnerability, a lot of introspection, where I actually do have to look at my actions, my speech, my heart, I would have to look at a lot of things that I may not want to take the time to look at or deal with. I'd rather just deal with the surface issues of my life and know that one day I'm going to heaven. But to actually do this, to actually become somebody who could live a life that would be above reproach, this would require a tremendous amount of work. It would require a tremendous amount of prayer, of study, of community, Right? I, I would need help if I was to become this. And it would require me moving from the question of, can I even do this? Because <laughs> that's, that's where we all kind of stop with these things. I can't do this. To moving more to the question, is God going to do this? Is God doing this? Will he do this work in me? Will God accomplish this? Will God bring this about? Is he making us into men and women like this? Do we think that's really his desire? Do we think that's really what he's doing? And how do we know that God not only wants this from us, but that he will actually accomplish it in us? When so often we experience Right, our sin and our failures are before us. How do I know that this is, in fact, my future? That God even wants me to deal with this? That he wants me to become more and more like this? And the reason we know right, is because of the cost for this to be true of us now. Being stable and steadfast is what God desires. And we know this Because this is who God died to make us into. Who am I to disregard the life that Christ gave his life for? 
we need to get serious about the life we pursue. We need to get serious about the life that we desire. We need to reorient our hopes and our lives around these things. Psalm 15 is a beautiful psalm and a necessary one for us, a good correction. We can't stay in Psalm 14 our whole lives. Woe is me, a sinner among sinners. No one is righteous. No one is righteous. I'm not good. I'm not good. I'm not good. I also have to train my heart and my mind to see who it is that Christ died for me to become, who he is strengthening me to be. Where is my future? Where am I going in this life? And to take it seriously, to pursue it, to long for it, to pray for it. Because the gospel is really meant to convict and encourage us. It's not just the encouragement of you're going to go to heaven one day, congratulations, nothing you do is ever going to be held against you. The gospel also convicts me. I was bought at a tremendous cost. My life is not mine. What is it that the Lord requires of me? What is it that the Lord wants of me? This essential question of Psalm 15 needs to be our question too. Lord, what do you want from me? What are you doing in me? What, it, what will it take for you to do this work in me? I want you to do the work that you said you were going to do in my life. I want you to do it at whatever the cost to me. To be able to pray this psalm like David does, for him to be able to say Psalm 14 and Psalm 15 it really requires a training of our hearts and our minds around God's law and his grace. It really does. It's, it's this lifetime of reorientating our hearts and our minds towards God's law, delighting in the law, desiring the law, understanding God's grace for us and that motivating power of the spirit in us and this forgiveness of sin, but then seeing seriously and desiring and hoping for, praying for, the life that he's called me to live, which is going to be my entire life of training and desire and walking into that stable and steadfast life, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Right? The New Testament is constantly talking about this, the renewal of our minds and the finding that hope to no longer be moved, not shifting around, but to be stable and steadfast. This should be our hope and it should be our desire because it's God's desire for us.